Welcome to another exciting episode of The NIDS View, a weekly show of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies, where we are advancing peace, promoting stability, and helping you to think deterrence. Each week, we discuss and analyze a recent topic and provide insight into how it affects our national deterrence. We hope you enjoy this show. Welcome back to another great episode of The NIDS View. Of course, I'm Adam Lowther, along with Jim Petrosky and Chris Stewart. Curtis McGiffin is on assignment and will be back in a couple of weeks. Now, for this week's episode, we have a great article that we wanted to discuss. It was published by the National Institute for Public Policy. And, of course, Michael Rule wrote an article entitled German Musings About a European Nuclear Deterrent. Now, the article is focused on German and European considerations of an independent nuclear arsenal because, of course, Russia has been highly aggressive, has threatened, you know, it's invaded Ukraine. There's been a war ongoing for a couple of years now. And, of course, uh, you know, the, the Russians have threatened the use of nuclear weapons against Europe. And there's also a concern that a second Trump administration will lead to the United States withdrawal of its extended deterrent. And so Rule discusses German fears and German contemplation of an independent arsenal. And he makes four basic points uh, as to why this is probably you know, not a good idea, not necessarily. Point number one, there's no nuclear consensus within the EU about the legitimacy of nuclear deterrence, but rather massive disagreement. His second point, German ideas about an eventual Europeanization of French nuclear weapons, because the British and the French, of course, have their own nuclear arsenals, that that remains a classic case of wishful thinking, i.e. the French are not going to offer a Europe-wide extended deterrent. Point number three, credible nuclear deterrence also requires conventional strength, which the Europeans have not developed the kind of conventional capabilities that you employ successfully before you ultimately escalate to nuclear weapons. And then as fourth Well, fourth of five points is fourth, due to the enormous destructive power of nuclear weapons, any decision with regard to their use will rest with the political leadership of the nuclear state itself. And this is in regard to this idea that, you know, it'll be under European control or, as one German author suggested, you could have, you know, the the, uh, nuclear briefcase could rotate amongst EU member states. And therefore, whoever had it at the time would have the ability to authorize nuclear use. And so, of course, that uh, is a you know sort of wishful thinking and a no-go. And then the final point is that even in a prospective second Trump term, Washington will remain a global power. That is why President Trump, despite employing damaging rhetoric, did not touch the nuclear deterrent in Europe, end quote. And so these were his main points, and we thought we would discuss that today because it's certainly a provocative and interesting idea. So, Jim, Chris, thanks for joining us to talk about this, you know, intriguing concept. 
Yeah, thanks, Adam. I'm going to turn it to Chris because of some technical problems we had. We might lose him toward the end of the cast, so give him the first billing here. Go ahead, Chris. Well, thanks, James. And James and Adam, always great to be with you guys. Love what you do and love the way you do it. And Adam, I think you did a great introduction to what is actually, uh, at, at, at the same time, interestingly, it's a very, very complicated uh, matter and a lot of politics and a lot of strategy, a lot of military capabilities, a lot of history, all of those things kind of play into this question. But at the same time, I think it's kind of a a simple matter because the entire premise of this article, in fact, the entire premise of this conversation is built on, you know, the fear that the United States is going to withdraw its its commitment to protect Europe with its nuclear umbrella that has been in place, you know, for going on more than more than half of a half a century now. And and I I just don't think that's possible. I don't think that's likely at all. I don't know anyone who's seriously suggested that. And and I was as as you both know, I was a member of Congress, House Intelligence Committee on the uh, Defense Appropriations. I was close with the President of the Administration, the National Security Advisor, and others. Spent a lot of time at the White House talking about national security concerns. Some of them immediate, some of them kind of long term strategy. But during that time, I never ever heard anyone, again, suggest that we would withdraw our nuclear protection, our commitments to Europe. And and there's a very important distinction I want to make here, and, and it really is a key to this. We have been pressuring NATO, our European allies, to, com- to comply with the commitments they've made to f- properly fund NATO. Every one of the NATO countries has said they will spend 2% of their GDP on their own self-defense. Some of them do. Poland, the Baltics, you know, maybe one other. But most of them don't, and in fact, the richest country in Europe, G- Germany, is is, you know, is the le- least supportive of NATO when it comes to their 2% commitment. Uh, theirs is much lower than the average. And we were trying to pressure, and I think this is the right, the right strategy, we were trying to pressure these countries to you know, fulfill their commitments to their own self-defense. And there was some talk about, well, maybe we'll redeploy some of the forces out of Germany. There was some talk about, well, if you're not going to defend yourselves, then we'll, we'll, we'll question our commitment as well. But that was always under the conventional force. It was never about the nuclear deterrence. And I, and I think the entire premise of the article is something that's very, very unlikely to occur. Yeah, it's a good point, Jim. Yeah, I'm going to take a different. Uh, I'm going to take a different view, Chris. And nice to have you on, Adam. Always good to see you, and happy New Year to everybody again. Uh, although we did do our New Year's broadcast, we actually had to record it before the New Year. So this is the true New Year for me. Um, yeah, so I'm going to take a different uh, piece on that, uh, Chris, because I, I don't disagree with anything you say. But I I read this with a different view, and I sort of poo pooed away all the arguments that. You know, suddenly, you know, uh, a, a pre- President Trump is going to disarm our, our nuclear uh, uh, support to uh, uh, Europe in the same way that I would probably poo-poo an argument to say a second Biden administration would get rid of the entire nuclear force in the United States and we'd have no no nuclear umbrella as well. So putting those sort of arguments on the side that seem to be red herring arguments, I thought that the interesting thing about this is the fact that Europe is, at least it seems, is talking about the nuclear deterrent and the value of a nuclear deterrent. The fact that if the U.S. would pull away its really nice uh, and valuable nuclear umbrella from Europe, oh my, we need to have our own. That shows 
much about the value of not only the nuclear umbrella, but the United States effort to build, maintain, sustain, advance, modernize, and retain a nuclear deterrent so that we do not have to, and the Europeans do not have to, do it themselves. Or we do not have to worry about the attack, or at least we don't have, you know, we have a, an answer for, you know, a, a country like uh, uh, Russia or a person like Putin to, to put this in order. And we are also doing that for other countries as well. So the, the fact that this is being discussed is good. I always like information. And I'm also surprised in reading this, and I don't know what the answer is. Maybe Chris or Adam, you have an answer for this, but I'm surprised with Putin next door with his nuclear force that this is not that this is like the first time this is being discussed, you know, as a European effort. Um, I do think it's somewhat silly about having a, you know, suitcase with a red button floating around to each country like, hey, next week's your opportunity. I see that silliness just to, gives you a little bit of information about how the article's written. Um, and then I, I guess the last argument I would make is the one about arguments made by the disarmament community who would see this. I'll use proliferation is their word. My word is participation of Europe is when you have when, when you, disarmament talks about the United States having nuclear weapons. Oftentimes they say, well, that puts a target on our back. And in some ways it does. We become the target for people that wish to you know, do harm and they fear our nuclear deterrent. Well, if Europe has it, that target goes away from us, at least from the European umbrella standpoint. And no one talks about that piece. And I don't see any of that in this uh, in this article. Um, any comments on that? Well, Jim, uh, you know, I, I think Rule is the author, Michael Rule, has offered up a really sort of good explanation of how, you know, Germany was one of the sort of leading anti-nuke mm -hmm. countries where, you know, you had the former uh, foreign minister, uh, Joshka Fischer, who had argued over the last 20 plus years of, you know, it was get rid of the nukes. It was, you know, they're no longer useful. And now as, as of a couple of years ago, he had, you know, he was clearly in support of them. So it, it sort of demonstrates the fundamental change in perspectives in, you know, Germany, the largest economy, most powerful nation in, you know, in Europe. And it, it's, it just goes to show how perspectives are changing largely because of, you know, the aggression of Russia. But it also, I, one of the other things I, I took away from it was how little the Europeans fundamentally understand American politics and how those politics work and the constraints, you know, whether you're, you know, uh, Barack Obama and you're a brand new president and you win the you know, you win the Nobel Prize for peace because you're going to get rid of nuclear weapons, but then you end up being the president who makes the deal to modernize. Or if you're the Biden administration and you come into power and you say, you know, we're going to, you know, dra dramatically reduce the size and, you know, uh, doctrinal use of nuclear weapons and you don't really do any of that. There are constraints outside of the president's own wishes and desires that whether you're Trump or Biden or Obama, it doesn't really matter. You have things that constrain any kind of wants or aspirations that you may have. And so I gathered 
from you know the article that that the Europeans don't really understand those sort of systemically how American politics and you know how presidents are constrained in their ability to exercise their aspirational yeah. goals. So that was one of the, those were kind of two things. But Adam, I, I think it also shows you know, this concept of the re- realist idealist arguments we use for deterrence. You know, people that are under the threat tend to become realist all of a sudden. Uh, and you can see that threat there. I had it recently discussed with a, a person talking about disarmament and they said, you know, he who lives by the sword dies by the sword. And I thought about it. And my response with that is, yeah, he who lives by the sword at least gets to live by the sword. He who doesn't have a sword dies by the sword. Like there's no, <laughs> there's no other option. So, uh, you yeah. know, and I, and I see they're seeing that Chris. James, uh, you know, one, one thing I like to do is sound smart by repeating smart things that other people say. So I'm going to repeat the same thing, something that you and Adam said. Uh, number one is, James, you make a great point earlier about uh, the importance of uh, deterrence. And, and the, uh, I mean, Europe is saying, well, if we fear that the U.S. actually won't provide that deterrence, then we have to provide our own. Um, and it's a recognition that that there is uh, there's an enormous hammer hanging over your head if Russia or some of your other adversaries have a nuclear force and you don't. No, no one wants to use nuclear force. Of course, it's. I mean, God forbid it, that ever were to happen, but it's less likely to happen if you have deterrence. And uh, and I think you alluded to that point about this is clear evidence that, you know, when push comes to shove, Europe will not leave themselves undefended. We hope and I believe, as I stated, that the U.S. will, will fulfill that commitment. But if they were to uh, suspect that we didn't, then they would generate their own deterrence because they know how critical it is. And uh, Adam, you talked about uh, how, you know, it's easy to, you know, give a platitude. It's easy to stick a bumper sticker on your car. It's easy to go out and chant something that doesn't really make a lot of sense in the real world. And, and Europe and nuclear power, uh, nuclear deterrence is a pretty good example of that for, you know, going on two generations now, there were people in Europe who said, you know, we're going to remove all nuclear weapons from the continent. We're not going to have any here at all. Uh, and again, it's easy to say that, but the policymakers know. And, and by the way, some of the policymakers now in power mm-hmm. have, have said that, uh, including people mentioned in this article who just a, f- a few years ago were saying, yeah, we should remove all nuclear weapons from Europe. Easy to say when you don't have to actually make that decision. And as Adam, as you said, President Obama had a, had a bit of a change of heart on this once he had the responsibility of actually deterring and actually protecting um, and I think there's, again, a good example here of how uh, the platitude and the simplicity of, oh, wouldn't the world be beautiful if we had new nuclear weapons? In fact, I would argue, and you could argue persuasively, the world would be much more violent if we didn't have nuclear weapons. So the cost of conventional war, there's this a really, really interesting study about the percentage of deaths throughout history because of war – uh, among civilian populations and how after the 1940s, it dropped off incredibly. And the reason it did is because the threat of nuclear war was so, was so uh, you know, so overpowering to people that it actually bridled them in conventional war. Uh, and when policymakers are faced with that decision, almost universally they recognize, yeah, this is, a, this is an, inc- an incredibly important tool that we have to maintain peace it has incredibly positive outcomes, and uh, and we need to support this. 
Yeah, Chris, I I, I want to highlight another piece off of that. It's sort of a, a segue to that, um, and that is that in the paper they they mention, and I, I understand the, the the part of the argument. I'm not making the same argument. It says, however, while presenting their case in detail, the authors reveal their analytical confusion. For example, they claim that deterrence today depends on the ability to preemptively destroy an opponent's entire nuclear arsenal. And I just want to bring that up because of, of what you said about, uh, you know, the understanding of each of the components of deterrence. And the fact that you look at someone like North Korea, they use their nuclear weapons in terms of using them, not employing them, at least they haven't yet, against another country, but they use them for leverage and they use them for coercion. And you don't have to have the ability to destroy anything. You have to have the ability to have one and employ it and threaten people. That's the use of the nuclear weapons that makes deterrence so valuable with nuclear weapons, unlike any other kind of, of weapon. And that's why we've seen this turn away, as Chris Chris just mentioned, this turn away from the large-scale wars into a more manageable, uh, lower-scale wars. Adam, you have better words for, for it than I do because you've studied this longer. But we're not seeing that uh, in recent years because of the nuclear weapons. So maybe it's a good thing Europe's starting to look at this. I don't think anybody would probably say that it is uh, a bad thing that the Europeans are contemplating it. It's certainly, from from an American perspective, if you can have a cessation of anti-nuclear rhetoric and anti-nuclear... Because one of the things you've had, if you go back to the Obama administration... And I would participate on behalf as is sort of the Air Force representative in different meetings. And you would have European NATO members would talk about, hey, you know, publicly we're going to we're going to support the reduction or elimination of nuclear weapons in Europe. And because we have publics that want that. But in private, we don't want them to go anywhere. And that was sort of the, you know, amongst some of the European governments, that was their their position. Whereas now you have a a fear amongst European publics, and then of course that fear of the Russians and what the Russians may do, therefore changes their public perception. And now you have governments feeling confident enough that they can publicly say, hey, maybe we need to contemplate our own nuclear mm-hmm. arsenals. And one of the the aspects that I was a little surprised isn't part of the discussion is although the United States does have, you know, if you go back to the the cold war, the United States had approximately 5,000 tactical nuclear weapons across Europe. And and then by 1991, when those weapons were removed, there was about 3000 tactical nuclear weapons across Europe. Now we're down to under 200 and those couple of hundred or you know that's the dual capable aircraft the fighter delivered and to accomplish that mission there's significant support that's required you don't just put a nuclear bomb on a on an f-16 or an f-35 or a rafale and then just fly it to its target drop it destroy the target fly home it doesn't work that way and so we're we're in actually in a very challenging position right now in our ability to actually execute the DCA mission. And I would have thought that for the Germans, concerns that the United States and and those partner nations that have 
that will fly those missions as well, that they would say, hmm, I wonder if we need our own capability because I'm not confident that the DCA mission is is even one that's doable, right? Because this is one of the things that I don't think people think about particularly sort of in the arms control community, they, they, they sort of figure out, hey, there's 100 targets, therefore we need 100 weapons. And what they don't r- realize is that, it, take Vietnam, for example, the Vietnam conflict, the United States would, would fire 55,000 rounds of small arms ammunition for every one adversary that they killed. So it was a 55,000 to one ratio. And so this idea that, you know, if you have 10 targets, you need 10 weapons. That's not historically borne out. We very well may lose many of, you know, those aircraft shelters where the DCA aircraft are. They may be obliterated in a opening Russian, you know, attack, and they could be obliterated with conventional or nuclear munitions. So I would, I'm surprised that we're not seeing more sort of detailed thinking on the Germans part that says, okay, well, here's what we've got. Here's how vulnerable they are. Maybe we need an additional European arsenal that is a different type of capability so that it can make, you know, what the Americans have even, even more credible. And that wasn't a discussion. And maybe Europeans don't think about deterrence and, you know, like if you don't have an arsenal, you don't think about it that much. I, I'm not real sure, but that was something that sort of surprised me. Yeah, Adam, um, thanks. No, I, I appreciate that, and I agree. Maybe maybe the Europeans build a tactical nuclear force and to supplement our strategic nuclear force, you know, something like that, which brings me to the question. I hadn't thought about it until you start talking, and for the sake of our audience, since you're an expert in the concepts and theory of deterrence, if— let let's say let's say for whatever reason I'm not going to get into the political side of this, but let's just say we do stop our nuclear de- uh, umbrella for Europe, and Europe therefore builds some credible nuclear force among the European nations. How does that change the nuclear strategy for the United States, or does it change it at all? What's what's your thought? Since you've given much more thought to this than I have, and I'm sure our audience would like to hear it. Yeah, I mean, if let's suppose hypothetically, whether it's in a second Biden administration or a, you know, a second Trump, I don't know that it really matters. But the whoever the president is, there's a decision made to withdraw the B sixty one twelves out of Europe, and you know, for for the United States, part of what that does is it essentially, you know, says well, our our only requirement for what well, let's call them tactical nuclear weapons is is in potentially in Asia or we'll say well we don't need any kind of tactical nuclear weapons we'll only have strategic and so any time we respond with a nuclear weapon it's going to be a strategic nuclear weapon and that, because that would be the pressure the pressure would be to get rid of all you know, the gravity bombs, anything that can be tactical. And to me, that would be a huge mistake. And and it also goes to one of the points that, that Michael rule, the author of the the article that we're discussing 
he makes, and I'm going to quote him here, he says, hence a European investment in nuclear weapons without also strengthening conventional capabilities would place demands on nuclear deterrence that is unlikely capable of bearing. The results would be, would hardly be a substantial net security gain. And so his his point here is that for the Europeans, you can't just replace the American DCA mission with, you know, some of your own gravity bombs. But you have to build a substantial conventional capability that you can fight the Russians with first. And then if that conventional capability fails in a large scale conventional conflict, that's when you start to say, okay, well, you're, you're now threatening our sovereignty and therefore we're going to contemplate escalation to nuclear use. But absent that, what absent that conventional capability, what you're going to say is, Hey, we're going to go nuclear early and often. (laughs) And that is a less credible uh, approach than saying, hey, we're going to fight you conventionally, and then if that fails and sovereignty is at stake, then we'll escalate. That's a more credible approach. And so that's that's part of the challenge that, you know, the Germans, the Europeans have. So right now, I mean, there's over the last few years, there's been a number of articles that have discussed German capability and essentially what many you know analysts are saying is that the germans don't have the ability to fight they don't they don't have the requisite tanks aircraft uh pilots uh sufficient training across the the spectrum of their armed forces that they just aren't capable of fighting because they have so focused their investments on their on the social welfare state and so little on the military and and in part by doing that the argument that hey we're going to go nuclear and we're going to do these things on our own it's not a credible threat because they haven't demonstrated that they are going to build the conventional capability much less the nuclear capability yeah i i'd only say never underestimate the germans because i think we were saying that in like 1928 or 31 or something like that they didn't have much of a military then either right so, um, you know, tongue in cheek somewhat, but not tongue in cheek somewhat. You know, you can be surprised what someone will do out of fear um, and how quickly when people work together that they can bring about a military organization and and, and work together to to pull together a force. I just my my issue is how does the, you know and and. Too much for this podcast, but just sort of a thought experiment maybe for our audience and probably we need to probably close out about now um, is that, you know, if if you're building some nuclear force and let's just say Europe is, is is attacked and uses nuclear weapons, does does the U.S. definitely get into the fight or do we let them duke it out? You know, you look at what's happening, and I'm not I'm not trying to set policy here or not, but these kind of things need to be thought through in war games, etc. If this is a credible potential for Europe, because in my opinion, and I appreciate your assessment, Adam, is that the uh, that it's got to change dramatically our strategic assessment of the way in which a war will be executed and won. And we have to look at that because it really complicates matters. And so although I'm into, you know, although I've said before, nuclear participation 
uh, by other states, I think, provides deterrence leverage. Uh, I'm, it does complicate the way in which we strategically fight a war. Yeah, I mean, the only way the Americans are not in the middle of this is if they withdraw from NATO, which I don't foresee the U.S. Because otherwise, you know, it's a it's a breach of Article five and Article five is a collective defense and everyone comes to everyone else's aid. I mean, that's a requirement in the NATO, you know, the NATO but, charter. But so aid, Adam, versus I, aid, the Amer- aid versus employment in nuclear weapons is a there's two different steps there. And I, I see them largely different. I agree. We help in the fight. Don't get me wrong. But do we do we also, if one of our allies goes nuclear, we go nuclear? And again, I, I'm not sure we can answer that here. It, but do you see how that complicates matters? Maybe you don't. Sure. I mean, it, I, I, you know, the nuclear, the use of nuclear weapons is never <laughs> simple or, or straightforward. So I think I think we can agree on that. But. I just don't think the United States abandons yeah. I, its, you know, its oldest treaty partners. I, I don't see that. I, I agree with you, but it's an interesting thought experiment nonetheless, because it, in my opinion, as I started this out, it brings up the value and the importance of our nuclear deterrent and how when you become a realist or when the rubber meets the road, whichever way you, you come to that conclusion, um, the nuclear weapons serve an enormous and important purpose in retaining the peace that we have. And that's the lesson I walk away with from this article. Yeah, definitely. I mean, nuclear weapons are important and it just goes to show how much the Europeans rely and depend upon American extended deterrence. So... Any final thoughts from you, Jim, before we close out the episode? No, I, uh, I thank Chris Stewart and uh, for our audience. He had to drop off because we had some technical issues, but uh, I think he got, uh, I appreciate it always when Chris comes on. He, he had uh, great insight. And Adam, as always, uh, your expertise uh, makes this show valuable, and hopefully our listeners uh, gathered something new from this, something to think about, talk about at your uh, dining room table and uh, in your organizations about the value of deterrence. So back to you, Adam. Well, thanks to you, Jim, and Chris Stewart, and thanks to you, the listeners, for joining us on this episode of The Nids View. And as always, we want to remind you to think deterrence. Thank you for listening to The Nids View. This show is produced under the Nids Podcasting Network, a division of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies. Nids is a 501c3 organization dependent upon donations to provide this podcast and bring about awareness of the peacekeeping value of U.S. strength and our national deterrence. You can catch all of our podcasts or provide feedback at thinkdeterrence.com. I would like to thank our producer, Kimberly Charrington, our sponsors, and all the fantastic members of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies for making this podcast possible. Stay tuned next week for another exciting and informative The NIDS View.